welcome everyone to Equals. This is Nabil. We're back. We're back with a special episode after the COP Glasgow Climate Talks. Yeah, welcome everybody. This is Max. And uh, yeah, we're back after Nabil's uh, visit to the motherland. <laughs> the motherland? You mean you mean the UK? Yeah, I mean, the centre of the empire, uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Well, firstly, it was obviously nice to travel back to the UK after so long. Two years, right? Because of COVID and see my family and, and all that. Max, talking of family, I didn't get to see you, which I was a little bit sad about. Yeah, but I understand. I mean, you, you had a lot of family to see and you're also from the north. Cool part of the UK. My wife would agree with you. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, it's one, it was such a long time for the kids not to see their grandparents. You know, two years absolutely. Is, is forever, isn't it? And equally just very lucky to go back. But Max, this your point about the UK being the motherland, the centre of the world and all that. I mean... Surely, come on, bad things only happen when the UK is the centre of the world. Think of empire, think of the Glasgow climate talks, which brings us nicely to today. Oh, I've missed your amazing segues. I mean, you're just such a natural. Uh, it's true. Bad things happen all over the world. You can see uh, the UK is almost always involved. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, the Glasgow Climate Talks was a massive moment for the world. I'm sure many of you out there were following all very closely. I know I was and involved in that as well. And also a massive moment for global inequality as well. And, and our episode speaks to that today, doesn't it, Max? Yeah, it's going to be a great episode. Absolutely. We'll be wrapping up the episode with Naf Kote. Darby Naf has been actually on the podcast before. She's a leader in the climate movement. She's from Ethiopia. She's one of our colleagues. Uh, she's going to be sharing her reflections, but also sharing some really important thinking about how the rich, the world over, are driving this climate crisis. We're also going to hear from Asad Rahman, in, who's the executive director of War on One uh, here in the UK, where he organises to put an end to poverty and injustice. Before that, he was the head of international climate at Friends of the Earth. And he's an amazing guy, he's 25 years of experience and just a hero in the global justice uh, sector. And he played a leading role, didn't he, at COP, uniting different climate movements, acting as their spokesperson. Yeah, and his speech, which uh, was just it was just really moving. Absolutely. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Asad, hi. Welcome to Equals. Now, we've just had COP. You must be you must still be absolutely exhausted, but we wanted to speak to somebody, you know, really from the heart of the climate justice movement. But obviously, to have an Asian from the north of England is is a massive bonus. So <laughs> welcome to Equals. Yeah, because we don't have enough of them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. There was a day, there was a time when I used to walk in the environment movement and uh, look around and go, wow. I'm the odd one out here, right? And everybody looks the same. The government looks the same. The UK NGOs look the same. Ooh, they even talk the same. They have the same jokes. They're in. They all feel very, very pally together. Uh, obviously, I'm. I, I feel like I'm. A, I'm the outsider in this, both in politics and in obviously in uh, in colour. There's one thing that COP26 did. It showed that there's another lens to look at both this crisis and all the other multiple crises that uh, we're facing at this moment. Well, let's get into that. So, I mean, how many cops have you been to? Oh, more than is healthy to do. It's over 10 and closer to 15, I think, now. I think for me, watching broadly from the outside, one of the most inspiring things has been the, the climate justice movement and how it's got more vibrant but more radical over like the last decade. And you've been at the heart of that. Can you just talk us through what, what drove that? Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the centre of climate has definitely changed. There was a moment after after Copenhagen where a UK minister rang my then boss in the middle of the night 
and told him and I said, can you do something about your climate Taliban? He said, can you do something about your climate Taliban? Goodness. They're wrecking the outcome, right? And now we're not the marginal. In fact, people who are the marginal are the ones who think, you know, business as usual and living within the system is, is totally possible. I think analysis has been proven absolutely correct. We are heading towards at least two and a half degrees, 2.7 degrees warming. We we see the power of not just the fossil fuel industry, agribusiness and, and powerful vested interests continue to dominate climate. I've always said climate is, the climate negotiations are not in negotiations about climate or environmentalism. Fundamentally, there are issues about political economy, whose economy is going to dominate, who will be sacrificed in that choice. And then without that understanding, we were never going to be able to change that dial of both the conversation and what needs to happen. This is not an environmental fight. It's a justice fight. Brilliant, Asad. And, and it's very good to hear that. Now, let me ask for your headlines about what actually happened at COP itself. I mean, some people have seen the headlines in newspapers and online. Was it a total failure? Did anything good come out of this COP? What's your what's your kind of headline analysis? Well, for people and planet, and if you remember... The Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, when he opened the climate uh, UN summit, said we're at one minute to midnight. There was no sense of either urgency or justice in the outcomes. So if on the simple criteria, did it do anything to prevent the climate crisis? Did it help people? No. The pledges are on the table, still lead us to 2.7 degrees warming, catastrophic when we needed to limit at 1.5. The unbroken promise of 100 billion, still more warm words on it. No, nothing, no change in terms of that. On the critical issue in terms of around adaptation, yeah, we'll talk more. On loss and damage, we'll talk more. I mean, it's literally saying, we know your house is burning down, we can see it burning down around us, but all we're ever going to offer you is a helpline, but with no help at the end of it. So from that perspective, in terms of what we needed to happen, absolutely not. But I would say the flip side of that is it was going to be even worse. So what we did was not necessarily win huge victories, but we prevented it from being even worse than it is now. I think sometimes we have to understand that the cops are also about stopping the bad things whilst we're building power and trying to transform politics both nationally and globally. I mean, I think lots of uh, listeners will have heard a bit about loss and damage, but not really understand the importance of it for the global south and the difference between that and kind of adaptation finance. And could, could you just tell us a bit about that and why it's so important? Sure. So climate negotiations have traditionally been about first what they call mitigation, i.e. cutting emissions, right? Stopping the pollution in the first place. And as climate justice groups, we've always said that needs to be done on a fair share basis. Those who are responsible cut their emissions and provide support to poorer countries and lesser well-off countries to be able to cut their emissions because they're also, of course, dealing with global poverty and inequality. But we recognise that as temperatures increase, that no uh, level of warming is safe and it's deadly. So we also know that we need to adapt. And so the second pillar becomes into it. How do we adapt to these changing temperatures? Everything, how do we adapt our food systems, our cities, to our work, all of those. But we're now in a position where we have to basically say we're in a world where that damage is already happening. Climate impacts are already happening around the world. They're devastating people's lives and livelihoods. And that's what's called loss and damage. And for countries of the global south, representing over 80% of the world, they made that a very central demand. It was a red line for them saying, what we need here is for rich countries to accept their liability because they've caused this problem and support for people and communities and nations already being overwhelmed. 
And as we know, we're in a moment where many nations are overwhelmed with both, both the COVID pandemic and the inequities there, the global recession and the climate crisis. So each extreme weather event has a compounding effect and overwhelms countries. So what we needed here in Glasgow was a real commitment to create basically a third pillar and a facility so that much urgent help could be provided to those on the front lines. Would you say it's a proxy for reparations? Absolutely. People can use different words for it. It's not charity. It is. Uh, For many years, we talked about it as, you know, you have to pay your debt to the world. But reparations, absolutely, is part and parcel of that. Reparations to repair the damage that the global north has done on the global south. And reparations in terms of, not just in terms of then repairing, but recognising. And a fundamental point is recognising your responsibility. And the United States, the UK, the European Union had a huge red line said we will not accept liability we will not accept responsibility we're happy for you to talk about this but we are not going to say that we are responsible for this and this is part of a wider push by rich countries to say we're not liable everything that's happened in the past forget it what we should be looking at now is everybody needs to deal with this equally so the countries who've got the wealthiest have got the capacity don't want to step up and say we cause this problem what they want to say is Here's a crisis. Everybody do what you can. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Asad, that's that's very interesting. About those who are liable, what's very interesting, looking at many of the headlines in the rich country press, they seem to be pinning the blame on India, right, for the failure of this COP. You know, what's your take on that? I, you know, do we blame India for, for, for those insertions on the text? I mean, fundamentally, you know, within every every climate negotiations, you can write a press release at the beginning which says which global south country is going to be blamed. And it's always countries of the global south who are blamed. Never the richest countries, never the United States, which has been the biggest wrecker of the climate negotiations, never the UK, which presided over an unfair and unjust outcome of the climate negotiations, never those countries, always global south countries. Now, look, people are fixating on this one issue about India called for phased down instead of phased out of coal. They were saying, hold on a minute, if you simply say end coal, what happens to our people who need energy? So what we want is a phase down, but we also want it recognised that we need finance technology support if you want us to leapfrog from coal and leapfrog oil and gas. And, And remember for India, they use very, very little oil. They use very, very little gas. Coal is the primary energy source for the Indian economy. So what India was basically saying there was, don't put the blame on us, but we're happy, we're willing to actually even cut our coal, but simply targeting coal is unjust to the global south. Where, where do you stand, Asad, on the kind of the, the, the fossil fuel non-proliferation thing and basically a demand for every single country to stop any new exploration of fossil fuels? How does that address these issues of equity and... If you're an African country and you've discovered a new gas field that could potentially be a big source of energy and revenue, you know, are we going to tell them they have to leave it in the ground? Do we have to? What's your take on that kind of debate? So, so absolutely. Look, we, I think our starting point has got to be to recognise that there are different realities. If you're in the global south, where half the world is without access to electricity or clean cooking, there is a demand from citizens saying, we want energy. Absolutely. And it's right that they do have energy and they don't want energy for one light bulb or one phone charger. They want productive energy, right, to be able to ensure that their citizens can have productive lives, can live with dignity, have the very basic necessities. 
Now it's recognised in all carbon, in all climate discourse, that the global south, who have done the least to cause this problem, can actually increase their carbon footprint by a measure of three. The, it's the richest countries, the 18% of the world's population, who are responsible for about 60% of all of the historical emissions. And that's at the most conservative estimate that need to cut their emissions fastest and deepest. So when it comes to fossil fuels, which we all want to end, I'm not willing, and I think it's absolutely right that nobody should be willing to say to the global south, well, you're poor and you're going to stay poor. You're going to be locked into energy poverty. What we should be saying is this is a global problem. To solve any global problem, everybody needs to do their fair share. Equity or fairness is instrumental and core. It's the only way that you get ambition. So the fossil fuel treaty, non-proliferation treaty, a part of you know the equity and fair share approach is a real is a way for I think for anybody who cares about justice to approach this and say the only way we're going to stop us heading over the edge of this cliff is if we get all countries to do their fair share of effort in their emissions, in their fossil fuels, but also in terms of their fair share of providing the finance and resources so that everybody in the world can live with dignity. That's very, very powerful. And it seems to sp speak to, how do I say, the anti-colonial thinking at the heart of the climate justice movement. Now, I want to just dig a little bit deeper here because you, obviously you were at COP and you saw the dynamics there. It was very interesting to me to see these calls from some to say, you know, Saudi Arabia should be ejected out of the room because of their positions they're taken. And to be honest, I'm absolutely no fan of Saudi Arabia. So when I see something like that, kind of my, my initial feeling is one of sympathy. At the same time, there is some kind of colonial play going on here as well in terms of who is asked to you know, be out of the room and who isn't. What, what, what do you think of that? This language, this analysis had always been present from Global South or movements. Their biggest question was, where are the movements in the Global North that are based on anti-colonialism, that recognise our right and recognise our movements and the struggles that, they are being, that we're in? How, why is our story being replaced by a story of polar bears? Why is our story, our demands being ignored? Problem is, within the negotiations themselves, the most powerful voices are still being heard. But outside of those negotiating rooms, amongst civil society, amongst ordinary people, I think there's now a greater understanding and awareness. And that, of course, is really, really hopeful because that's exactly the movement that we needed. It's exactly the movement we need. You know, one that ties climate to inequality, to historical injustices and recognises that the reason why so many of the countries in the global south are locked into this situation is because of colonialism. You can talk, you can see it both from the economic point of view, from slavery, colonialism, imperialism to neoliberalism, but also conceptual sort of embedded racism and patriarchy that basically allows a mindset which says it is acceptable for to sacrifice people as long as they're black, brown and indigenous. And that's just part of business as usual. What's your view on the take that it's it's rich people and not rich countries that are largely to blame for what's going on? Fundamentally, we know that this is a structural problem, right? It's not simply, well, it's just rich people. There's an We've built an economy and a political system which allows the rich to get richer. And if we want to solve this crisis, it's a, it's a structural answer we need. So I, I'm always loath to go too far down the, it's these individual people who are responsible, right? Ten years ago, it was telling people, change your light bulb, you don't use a straw. Today, it's, well, get on a bicycle, you know, walk more. Absolutely, all those things are important. 
but they don't change structurally the way our economy is being created. And our, our economy, global economy, has been created around extraction and that's of all resources, fossil fuel, men, metal, metals, minerals. And the danger is that if you don't think about it structurally, that your transition will just replicate the same model of extraction. And we see that already. For example, people who think you can simply move from fossil fuels to renewable energy without recognizing actually, so where are all these, where's the iron and copper and the rare earth minerals going to come? Ah, it's going to come on the same communities that we've devastated for decades because of fossil fuels. That's not just, is there another way? Absolutely, there is another way, which is about living within planetary limits, having a circular world, not a circular economy, thinking about actually what is productive energy and what is useful energy, thinking about energy and food as goods, as social goods owned by and distributed equitably amongst people. You have a very, very different paradigm and you, and therefore the policies that you put in place are materially very, very different from the logic of just saying, well, it's, you know, it's the fault of 2,000 people. I think it's absolutely important that we show that, that it's the overconsumption by a small number of people who drive a lot of this. But that has to be a gateway to structural change and not simply about individual change. Absolutely, Asad. Absolutely. Asad, this, there's, I, mean, I don't know about you, Max, I've got a lot to reflect on after this interview. One thing I want to ask you, Asad, to close, and it almost feels terrible of me asking this question straight after COP26, but COP27 is a year from now. You're going, Sharm El Sheikh? Um, I mean, probably. Uh, <laughs> That's the last thing he wants to think about. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus Christ. But, but what I do want to say about COP27 is, COP27 is the Africa COP. It will be taking place in a continent that is on the front lines. And it's taking place in a continent presided over by a country that is also facing the realities of this climate crisis right now. In that situation, in that setting, Will we be able to make a move on things like loss and damage, on climate finance, on adaptation? I'm hoping so. And I'm also hoping that this moment of, of, of this movement that we've created, you know, recognises changing the COP in two weeks is never, it's not possible. Changing the COP 52 ye- weeks of the year is possible because what we have to do is hold the feet of our own national governments to, to the fire, change the politics in our own national countries so when they go there, not being wreckers, but actually committed to a just outcome of to this crisis. I said it's absolute pleasure. That was really brilliant and so clear for our listeners because we've got a whole range of different people really keen to know from the inside what's going on, and you just explained it so well. Thank you so much, brother. Solidarity. No problem. Wow, what an amazing interview. Asad's such a brilliant guy, isn't he? He brings it all together, Max, doesn't he? He brings together justice, anti-colonialism, anti-racism, inequality. Absolutely love the interview. And whilst I'd love to spend loads of time dissecting that interview, I'm absolutely overjoyed to welcome Naf back to Equals. Welcome, Naf. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. And Naf, so you've you've been at COP as well. I also, you know, we all know about your background working on climate at the grassroots over the years. You've also been intensely involved in these negotiations. Can you give us a top line? You know, what do these COP outcomes really mean from the perspective of the farmers who are not seeing their COPs grow, the small islanders going underwater? What does this COP outcome mean for them? 
you know, the whole COP outcome has been so disappointing. So much rested on this COP, civil society. The people who are impacted now by the climate crisis, they came with vital expectations to limit warming, to secure financial support for communities, but the COP hasn't delivered. So when everybody goes home from the COP, there are people who are going back to homes under immediate threats from flooding, droughts, wildfires, and so on. So what is the tangible change for them? What can they tell their children about their futures? What has changed? And honestly, not a lot. It's disappointing. Now, if we did some work um, just before the COP, which you were really involved in, and, and I, I'm not sure I helped with, but I tried to help with, which was about the emissions of the super rich, you know, the top 1%. And I think a lot of people think of it in terms of rich countries, poor countries, but it's also about rich people, poor people, isn't it? So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so our research shows how inequality is deeply part of the climate crisis. And unless, you know, governments tackle the emissions of the richest, we will lose our chance to limit warming to 1.5. What we did in our report is look at government climate plans, pledges, and estimate the carbon footprints of richer and poorer people around the world. So if we are to have a chance of limiting warming to 1.5, every person on earth need to be emitting 2.3 tons of carbon dioxide per year, by 2030, that is. So this is the per capita emission compatible with 1.5. Some of our key findings from our report, that is by 2030, first, the poorest half of the global population will still emit far below the 1.5 aligned level, while the richest 1% of the global population, they're set to exceed this level by 30 times. And the richest 10% of the global population are set to exceed this level by nine times. So someone in the richest 1% would need to reduce their emissions by around 97% compared with today to reach this level. So the whole report, you know, this tells us how inequality is deeply part of the climate crisis. That's so interesting to hear because it seems to be there's there's nothing we can't blame the rich for. And so now, very practically now, you know, it, it, it sounds frightening how, how much the rich are plundering the planet and driving this crisis. At the same time, it must have feel like a bit like opportunity as well. Like, here's a way we can get emissions down. Here's a way to get closer to, to 1.5. How do we get the emissions of the rich down? So what we need is systems change. We have been saying this, you know, like Oxfam has been advocating for this. So a lot needs to happen. For example, governments need to tax and ban carbon intensive luxury goods, such as SUVs, private jets, mega mansions, mega yachts, and now, you know, like space tourism. Governments also need to curb climate-intensive investments like stock holdings and fossil fuel industries. And above all, we need to end a system that creates extreme wealth. I really hope we can do all those things. And I think uh, I think one of the big findings of the report was, you know, whilst the emissions of, of others are, are set to decline, maybe not enough, but the, the, the emissions of the rich, unless something's done, they're going to increase dramatically, aren't they? There'll be a bigger proportion in 2030 than they even are now. So I think it's, it's so important we tackle them. And it's so interesting also, Max and Naf, to hear, you know, when people are talking about tackling climate breakdown, they're also talking about things like wealth taxes, which I don't think would have been heard of a few years ago, but that's absolutely necessary, isn't it, to bring down the wealth, the emissions and the power of that 1%. 
the difference i mean some people will say let's let's just tax the like investments in fossil fuels by billionaires but i think people like monbio are saying that no let's let's just have less rich people and in order to do that you tax wealth full stop you know so it's seeing a wealth tax a general wealth tax as an environmental intervention because unless we reduce the consumption and the wealth at the very top we're never going to save the planet yeah agreed you know for me what i find disturbing is that we live in the same world where right now millions millions of people in madagascar don't have access to food while a wealthy person travels to space just for a few minutes of sightseeing in space so like this kind of inequality has to end i can't put it better than that now so coming back to the 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 cop i mean a lot of what assad said was about he found his strength in the movement and, and he saw hope there but i mean what was your view you know what do does there anything out of glasgow that gave you hope for the next few years that inspires you to keep fighting Yes, I agree with Assad completely, 100%. You know, for me, the only positive outcome of this COP is that the public, civil society, communities impacted by the climate crisis, they have rallied together and recognized that we are in a climate emergency. And I think Greta has said it well. Uh, I quote, when enough people come together, then change will come and we can achieve almost anything. So instead of looking for hope, start creating it, unquote. So we can't choose to give up hope just because, you know, those in power failed us. My hope is with the people. Wow. Wow. Max, we've had a few hope answers. That is... That's one of the best. Thank you, Greta. <laughs> yeah. Stop looking for hope. Start creating it. Thank you so, so much, Naf, for, for, for joining us and for all you're doing. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. And that brings us to a close today. Please share this podcast with your friends and your family and leave us a good review. And there's an awful lot to learn and to dive into on this carbon emissions of the richest 1%. And Max, are you going to write about it? I am going to do a blog about it. Have a look at the Equals blog site. And that gives a link to the fantastic report that NAF was involved in and our colleague Tim as well. And all of some of the other fantastic analysis that's been done. So yeah, the best place to look at is the Equals blog site for all that. Equalshope.org. Thanks everyone for joining us. Join us next time. Thanks everyone. Bye now. 